0: Five,
1: four, three, two, one. Lift off Falcon 9. Falcon 9, Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. This is the SpaceCube podcast. SpaceCube produces more than just this podcast. I encourage you to visit our website at spacecube.ca check out the latest news and original stories written by myself and our other writers. We cover the space sector in Canada, along with select international stories, including NewSpace. We also publish a newsletter with the latest stories from ourselves and other trusted sources, along with some information and analysis that you won't find on our website. For more coverage of the global space sector and the U.S., please visit our affiliate sites, spaceref.com nasawatch.com, and astrobiology.com. If you like what we do, then please support us on Patreon. Our Patreon address is patreon.com slash spaceq. We need your support to keep producing this podcast and writing original, impactful stories. My guest this week is Joe Cassidy, and today we're going to talk about the 2018 Humans to Mars report, which was released last week at the Humans to Mars Summit in Washington. Joe is the executive vice president and a director at Explore Mars who published the report and organized the annual summit. I should note that his day job though is that of executive director space at Aerojet Rocketdyne. Welcome Joe to the SpaceQ podcast. Thank you. I was at the first Mars Society convention in 1998. It was my first space conference. At the time, the excitement of a human mission to Mars was feverish. Convention delegates believe that within 10 years, humans would be on Mars. Now, 20 years later, the 2018 Humans to Mars report has just been published, and it has a notional date of 2033 as the year humans go to Mars. That's 15 years from now. Before we discuss the details of the report and why 2033 is a target date, what happened to landing humans on Mars in, say, 2008?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. I'll, I'll, I'll go back even further than that. I'll say uh, I got out of uh, school in 83 uh, and uh, I went to my first Mars conference in Washington in 86 and Tom Payne was there and Carl Sagan was there and we were talking about going to Mars and being there in, uh, in the 90s. Uh, so it's happened to us more than once. Um, and I think the, the thing that uh, got me interested in joining up with Explore Mars when uh, they founded the organization was that they recognized that there was this problem of continuing to have high hopes and expectations only to have them dashed when, you know, this program or that program uh got uh got revectored by a new administration. And so uh one of our yeah, I'll just say this, one of our key uh uh points that we try to stress is the importance of uh public policy as an aspect of you know getting to Mars um because obviously if we can't keep people on course and keep on track, uh it's it's not gonna happen and and you're you're giving a good example of why. Um, you know, short answer on otherwise, I think you know technology-wise, I think we've been ready maybe for 10 years. Um, we've made a few strides uh, in the last 10 years. Obviously, there's interesting things going on, both you know, on the kind of mainstream side of the world, I'll call it, with, uh, with what NASA's pushing in terms of new technology, higher power solar arrays and solar electric propulsion. And there's also, of course, the, you know, the entrepreneurial side where people like Bezos and Musk are are doing a lot of really interesting things with access to space. So how's that for a nutshell answer?
1: (laughs) No, that's great. That's great. I mean, uh, you know, young people today understand that a lot of people have been wanting to do this for a long time. <laughs> yes, okay. yes, indeed. So uh, let's tackle the report. Um, while NASA's budget is increasing, part of the human exploration focus is being shifted to the moon. While the policy of getting humans to Mars still exists, the fiscal reality is that resources are limited and some of them are being shifted to, to the moon pr- programs. Within the current fiscal reality, can a humans to Mars mission still be targeted for 2033? And would that be a humans-to-orbit or a humans-to-the-surface mission?
0: Okay, it's a a multi-part question. Um, You you may have to remind me of the latter parts, but I'll start in uh, the the initial part of the question uh, in terms of resources split between the Moon and Mars. um, My answer is yes, I think it can. Um, And I'll tell you why. What we're seeing is a very interesting dynamic, where the um, the folks that are interested in lunar exploration are also interested in exploitation, and there seem to be a lot of folks stepping up and saying they have business plans which they can uh, get investment for uh, that involve going to the moon and prospecting and finding resources like uh, the ice in the lunar polar regions that could be then utilized for other uh, applications, uh, including going to Mars uh, as propellant and other, you know, uh, consumables like oxygen that could be produced out there. Um, and, And I think NASA is stepping up to that and saying they want to do this in a public private partnership. So it wouldn't be the kind of thing where we'd have to have a fully government program that would, be dedicated to going down and doing all that work on the moon. It might be more like um, a type of program where NASA could provide some of the infrastructure and then allow those commercial activities to take advantage of that. And and we're already starting to see that with the way they've laid out their um, catalyst program and some of the other uh, initial small lunar lander programs. Uh, where they're working with companies like Moon Express and Astrobotic. And I think that's the answer is is we're going to bring in, uh, where it's appropriate, some other uh, private investment to help do that, as well as doing things like the Gateway, which will be a lunar program in a sense. Uh, It's going to be in orbit around the moon. Um, Certainly, you know, can do some teleoperation and things like that from orbit. Uh, but um, it's also going to be a proving ground uh, destination for um, a lot of the systems that we want that we want to see proven out before we're ready to do that human mission to Mars So that's answer one now let's see the second part was um, second part was the timing is,
1: is it going to be a humans to orbit or humans to surface ah, and right. also the timing on on, on whether it's Uh, 2033.
0: Right. Okay. So, you know, 2033 is a date that, uh, has special significance because when you do the, the, uh, sort of synodic planning of the earth and Mars, that's a minimum in, in a 16 year approximate cycle. And so we all like that one because it's a very easy opportunity if we want to haul a lot of stuff out there and people. Um, the, I think the answer is, um, we don't know yet whether we could do the, the landing. Um, the big tall pole there that we have to solve is entry, descent and landing for large payloads. Right now we can put about a metric ton down on the surface with, uh, with the technology we have, uh, that we've done with curiosity. And we're going to do again with Mars 2020. Um, we need to go to 20 metric tons uh, approximately with human-sized payloads, and we have to do uh, three or four of those in order to really support a um, a, um, typical human mission with a crew of about four people. Um, So that's the big issue right now is, um, solving that one and whether we can get that accomplished, uh, maybe with some additional funding to do some of that, uh, research. That's another thing that we could do some of the work, um, you know, in terms of proving out some of the propulsion technology for the descent, uh, it could be done, um, with tests at the moon. Um, but, You know, whether it's orbital or um, uh, fully to the surface, I think we all see that as kind of a symbolic time frame. And I guess the other way I'd look at it is if we don't set ourselves a goal, it's easy to just get drawn back into um, sort of uh, capabilities uh, based activities where, we just keep saying, well, you know, we'll, we'll keep working on this until we have the perfect system. And then when we have the perfect system, we'll be ready to go to Mars. And I don't think any of us are satisfied with that. We think, we think we've think we got a good enough way to do it, um, with a couple of exceptions, and the big one that I mentioned being entry, descent, and landing. Um, but I think, uh, you know, otherwise, all we need to do is kind of keep going stepwise fashion, and and get ready. Um, so we and we've laid out some plans actually. And uh, it's not in the Mars report, but in another report that's going to be coming out soon from our workshop that we call Achieving Mars. Um, we have a, a really interesting set of architectures that we've laid out, and one of them you may have heard of before the uh, JPL Minimal Mars architecture that they came out with about two or three years ago. One of them is a little bit of a derivative of that. And um, it did show that you could, um, with a budget that wasn't any different than what NASA has now for the space station, adjusted for inflation over the time period of uh, between 2018 and 2033, uh, it's possible to put together the necessary systems and get to Mars with humans by 2033, with the caveat being, Um, In that plan, that was an orbital mission, and then we repeat uh, in 2037 on the next good opportunity with, uh, with a crew to the surface.
1: And when's that workshop?
0: Oh, it was last December, and and this is the report that is being published uh, just on the heels of the Mars report. We're we're just, usually we're pretty much uh, in sync with the Mars report, but this year we're a little behind because it's an all-volunteer activity, and we've been having trouble getting all three groups to come in and report. Uh Um, So look for that. It's going to be on the Explore Mars website probably uh, sometime before June, I'll say.
1: All right, so I think you've already answered my next question, which was um, there doesn't seem to be a consensus from the community between the humans to Mars on the surface for 2033, uh, whereas some are advocating to doing the orbital first and then 2037 as the mission to the surface. Uh, do you have anything to add on that? or?
0: Yeah, I, I think... Um I think most people would like to go ahead and go to the surface. And, and I'll tell you, uh, just coming out of the summit that we just had, um, uh, there was a uh, sort of an interesting discussion in one of the panels about that. And I've heard it before, too. It's, it's a little bit like this. If, if you go to all that effort and you uh, do all the things that are necessary uh, to put together the system of, of vehicles and, and um, uh, equipment, and all that preparation, and you have these four people take that long, long journey all the way out there, it seems like you'd want to try to get to the surface <laughs> if it's at all possible and and really that's I think that's where everyone is. It's just a matter of uh, from a funding profile and um um uh, you know just having the the available resources to do all the things that are necessary to get ready for the the entry, descent, and landing aspect of it in addition to all the other pieces, um, most of the time, the 2033 orbital mission is, is a little bit of a, I'll say, a, a fallback uh, in the event that we're not ready. If we could, if we could uh, get a little bit more budget than, than what we're projecting, um, go a little bit above the current uh, kind of LEO budget that is in human exploration and operations division in NASA... Um, we might be able to accelerate and get everything ready for a 2033 mission. All
1: right. So when you talk about funding, one of the things that you said earlier was that one of the reasons why this is now doable, because uh, even though the moon is in the picture, is that when we're talking about the moon, we're talking about public-private partnership and that there are business cases there for companies to, uh, you know, to to do work around the moon so it'll be a great uh, opportunity to save some costs from at least the public side now when you talk about and then you've made the case for going to mars in 2033 because of uh, the alignment of uh, the planets it'll be uh, a lot faster which uh, that translates into cheaper Um, but when we talk about funding one of the things that we need to talk about in, in these architectures is what are we going to use to get there? And I'm referring to uh, the different types of systems that are available. Uh, I'm yes. I'm going to uh, assume that you're talking about uh, using the space launch system uh, to to uh, do that first 2033 mission. Um,
0: it yeah. Uh, it's a, it's an interesting. Oh, I was just going to say, it's actually coming out as an interesting result of these architectures that it's a mixed fleet um, in terms of launch. Yeah. Um, if it's okay, if, if if I can take a second, sure. I, I'll describe it to you a, a little bit. And and again, I'd urge, urge anyone listening to go to the Explore Mars website. Um, and look for this report. It'll, it'll be called... Uh, we'll, we'll, have the report.
1: we'll have the report on the website with the podcast. Oh,
0: wonderful. Okay. And it's referred to often as AM5. <laughs> yeah. Because we, we have done five of these workshops now, and uh, so this is the outcome from that one. But uh, the, the idea is um, we need a cadence of launches that support the buildup of activities, and SLS is a part of that for some of the elements. Um, But we're also looking at needing commercial launchers to augment SLS. So it turned out in this scenario that I was describing earlier, um, we actually have 10 total launches, five of which are SLS and five of which are commercial. So, um, And then the interesting part for me, because I'm really more of an in-space guy, um, is that we utilize a split mission in in all, really all architectures that we're looking at right now is uh, done by sending cargo ahead and pre-positioning cargo ahead of the crew. And that's done with um, the solar electric propulsion vehicles, uh, which is part of NASA's plan right now with the power and propulsion element that they're developing, um, actually planning on coming out with a procurement for this summer um, that'll be part of the gateway at the moon. Um, so these are, you know, hundred—I'll say hundred to two hundred kilowatt class um, solar electric propulsion vehicles that are just able to transfer very um, efficiently these large blocks of cargo out to Mars, and then obviously um, the other aspect we talked about already is the entry, descent, and landing for those large blocks. So um, it's really interesting, though, um, and in terms of propulsion for the crew. Right now, I would say um, by taking all that cargo ahead, we can probably live with uh, conventional um, chemical propulsion. We might look at something like a LOX and methane combination because of um, you know in the future as we do this more, we really want to learn to um, live off the land, and Mars lends itself very nicely to making both oxygen and methane. Um, you know, if an in situ resource. Approach so that uh, we could avoid the big key here is avoid hauling a lot of propellant up from the surface of Earth, and that's why we do solar electric, and that's why we would look at uh, something like Lox methane and ISRU. Now, twenty
1: thirty three actually having a date and pushing to reach that date, uh, you know, that's something that we haven't actually done uh, in the past. Uh, as, you know, setting that notional goal. Uh, and because of the alignment yeah. and it's 15 years from now, you have companies like SpaceX that um, obviously uh, don't have the same philosophy in terms of their existence uh, as other commercial companies who basically are providing a product and service, uh, but don't have that big aspirational goal of, you know, we believe that humans need to settle uh, in the solar system and, and Mars to, to start with. And SpaceX has uh you know their own plans of of getting to Mars. do you think that there's going that we're going to see because of the realities and we know that there are times when Elon Musk talks about SpaceX and dates you know you have to add a factor in a few years on top of that uh, <laughs> yes hey it's just the way it's panned out right, uh, right. Do, do you see where are we seeing the beginning of a convergence between what SpaceX wants to do what NASA wants to do and of course there's also the global community which we haven't talked about yet uh, a convergence right. here and, and and this is all going to converge into possibly being this 2033 mission
0: Yeah Mark I I I think that's true I I really do I it's somewhat unprecedented as we were talking about there at the beginning you know and all the previous sort of cycles that we've gone through um it was always uh pretty much a us government uh, uh program i'll call it you know like an apollo type of thing that was promoted um and and that is one thing here that's very different now we've we, i want to touch on two points you made um we didn't have anything like um the musk phenomenon uh you know back in those days and certainly not someone like that who had a focus on mars um, and we also hadn't done the International Space Station. Uh, we hadn't had the experience of building something, you know, very big in Earth orbit, and doing that with international partners, and learning all those lessons, um, and and building those relationships. Frankly, that would allow us to bring people together to do that now. And I'm glad you brought that up because that also touches on the lunar exploration. There's a a lot of of interest among um, the, the international partners in surface exploration of the moon. Um, you know, some of us may feel that we've been to the moon. You know, as a, as a uh, exploration target, and and you know, from a national perspective, we could say, well, why are we going back to the moon? We did that, um, but some of those other countries haven't done that, and to them, it's still something that would be very appealing. So, yes, I think the answer to your question is I think that is a big difference. And we are starting to see that convergence. Um, You're also seeing it just it's amazing in the in the sort of the public sphere, how many books and movies and television shows and video games all are sort of having a theme of Mars, people on Mars, colonization of Mars. Um, Seems to really have captured the public imagination as well.
1: Let's talk about, uh, and we'll talk about more about the public side in a little bit. I'm sort of going through the report bit by bit here. Um, As we talk about architectures and we've talked about a cislunar gateway, um, when it comes to actually committing to let's say 2033, how soon do we need to make decisions on the type of mission that it will be because we have to have the fiscal dollars and the plan in place. What, what, what kind of right. timeline are we talking about?
0: Yeah, um, so I think that's why we're so focused on this architectural work right now, is we need to we need to sort of begin to um, cross off certain branches. You know how, if you've ever seen those uh, documents that NASA publishes, there's a lot of fish bones, so all kinds of different possible routes you could go down with different technologies. And we've actually done that. I mean, we, that's the one place where we really are seeing this convergence that you referred to. Um, we're pretty much in agreement that it should be a split mission. We should send the cargo ahead. Um, NASA's made a pretty big commitment to solar electric to do that. Um, you know, we're, we're my company right now has a large contract developing the, the thruster technology that's going to be like f- uh, three to five times higher power than what's flying today on commercial satellites. Um, other companies have already had contracts to develop the high power arrays. I mentioned the power and propulsion element of the gateway. NASA's going to pick a company or maybe two companies this summer to go off and start developing that. So, you know, in a sense, the decisions are being made. Uh, it's, it's maybe not as obvious to someone, you know, that it's not like someone comes out and says, we're going to Mars in 2033 and we're starting all these parts now. But bit by bit, and you mentioned SLS, obviously, you know, working toward a launch date, hopefully still December of 2019 for the first launch, um, Orion's flown already. So a lot of the pieces that are necessary pieces are already being worked on. And what we really then need is just the knitting together of those pieces. So, and there's there's still a couple of key decisions that have to get made. I'll, I'll come back to the idea that if we want to go to the surface by 2033, somebody really needs to step up here in the next year or so and say, we're going to fund a much larger effort in developing these entry, descent and landing technologies and and make a decision on, uh, on the type we're going to, we're going to go forward with. All
1: right. So now I'm going to throw another wrench into this. Um, Mars is not the planet we thought it was in 1976 when the twin Viking uh, landers landed Uh, as subsequent orbiters, landers and rovers have shown Uh, Mars is a wondrously diverse planet which once had water flowing on the surface. A key mission that needs to happen before humans set foot on the planet, which everybody seems to agree to, is a Mars sample return mission. At the moment, there is no funding for such a mission. Uh, When does a decision need to be made by and funding flowing for a Mars sample return mission to happen, such that the Humans to Mars mission can still take place in 2033?
0: That's a great question, and and you're absolutely right on. That was that was one of our findings in the report. In fact, that uh, that that's I think it's the top priority in the decadal. Um, everybody, the science community, the exploration side uh, for theme and exploration folks, we all agree that that's that's numero uno. We got to go do that. Um, and I think I I would say um, here we're, we're starting to look at the twenty budget now. Um, in terms of uh, putting together um, line items and things. I think it's got to be something that we push for to get into that budget. All right. I, and, I, I, I'm, and, and another one I'll bring up just as, as well is uh, MRO, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, is a key relay for the for the assets we have on the surface already, um, and uh, it's getting old and creaky. So we need another orbiter and a comm relay.
1: Yeah, so that goes into my next question, which also deals with budget and fiscal realities, which is, uh, you know, at the moment, the Mars Insight Lander was just launched. It's on its six-month yeah. mission to Mars. Then in 2020, another rover is going to be sent to Mars. But after that, there's no U.S. missions to Mars planned. Does that worry you, especially with the near-term focus on the moon? Should, could the, I, I, I keep coming back to this, but there's a reason. Right. Could the fiscal realities push future mars missions further down the road if we don't start you know fiscally planning now for for these other missions
0: yeah i, I it, it would worry me if i didn't see something starting to show up in the 20 budget definitely um i think right now um there's a there's a recognition and um i'll say it's a key piece of the policy work that we're doing at explore mars to point that out to people in congress So um, I'm pretty confident we'll see that change over the next year or so.
1: Now, Jim Briden—I'm just throwing this question in here. It wasn't on my list. Jim Bridenstine is the new NASA administrator. It took forever to get him confirmed. Yes. Uh, As a matter of fact, it was a record length of time. Um, He spoke at uh, the Humans to Mars Summit last week. Do you think that— and I know that he's very uh, pro-moon. Do you think he, he will support Mars?
0: I do. Um, in fact, um, we've uh, Chris Carberry and I have actually gone in and talked to him um, on a couple of occasions now, um, as well as to his staff. And um, the one thing I've been most impressed with is that he is very um, willing to listen. Um, he he uh is is somewhat considerate about um you know this diversity of opinions that are out there um and he and in his speech at uh the summit um he referred to uh, mars as you know still the goal um and the moon as as sort of um a stepping stone in a way but but what he really did is he pointed out that what we're going to be doing in working and and he stressed the the uh uh, development of commercial partnerships for low earth orbit, um, as well as reaching out and and he he may have pointed this reaching out all the way to the moon and the, and the CIS lunar space region. Um, but he kind of put it into the analogy of the transcontinental railroad in the United States. And so his point was, as we go out and we're building this stuff, you know, some commercial, some international, some NASA, um, The real key is we're developing the infrastructure that we need to go and and explore further. And I think that's one more point that's important for folks to know is if you really start to, you know, dig down deep into what the current administration is saying about NASA, they're really saying that NASA's mission is to explore. And a lot of this other stuff that we can do in space is appropriate for the private sector maybe more appropriate for some of our international partners. But what I think NASA is trying to do is say, yeah, we're, we're all about this mission of exploration. We're ready to go do that. And that's another thing we may see is we may see somewhat of a refocusing of, of NASA funding at large into more of the human exploration element.
1: All right. Our, our knowledge base of living in space is growing fast, but there are still challenges what are those challenges, and can they be met in time for a 2033 mission to Mars?,
0: that's another really good question. And um, I think they're they're coming down to a couple of things really. Um, one is uh, you know, the lo- long duration microgravity, because uh, um, as much as I hate to say it, we're not going to be able to build the ship they had in the Martian uh, for this 2033 mission. So I don't think we're going to have any artificial gravity on board. Oh,
1: come on. We need Uh, that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't fit the budget profile. I'm sorry. Uh, but you know, someday, someday. Uh, but that's, that's definitely one big one. And then the other is obviously the, the radiation environment out there in deep space with the, with especially galactic cosmic rays. Um, so I think the, you know, the, the two ways to solve that one, and obviously space station is, is giving us a wealth of information on the microgravity aspects. Um, and there are, you know, a lot of different things. One that I don't think anybody saw coming before space station was the, uh, the, um, uh, ocular problems that, and with the eyes that some of the astronauts are having, um, that we're still trying to get to the bottom of that. Um, but the, um, in terms of radiation, our, our big goal there is minimize transit time. So, you know, that's one thing that from a rocket side, we can do something about. And actually, you know, it's partly the architecture choice, too, because obviously, if you don't have to take everything with the crew, um, you can put them on a big rocket and uh, and keep the size of the payload small and that means you can go fast so we can keep those trip times down as close to six to seven months as possible and uh and then you know surface time is better than time in you know just free space because you've got a big rock there shielding you quite a bit um and so um i think those two um are the big challenges and Right now, we don't see them as showstoppers, but obviously we're still doing a lot of research. And then sort of a second tier is, you know, getting off of where we are on the station now, which is not completely closing the loop uh, to get a little closer to a closed-loop ECLS system and um, and then determining what to do with things like the the garbage and things like that when you're, you know, not able to put it into a supply ship and just send it down to burn up in Earth's atmosphere. So. You know, some of the mundane challenges like that. But right now, those are mostly workable. Uh, not, not saying they're not there and not challenges, but they're they're challenges that we see solutions to.
1: Now, I'm just going to throw this in here. You know, one of the things that we see from good science fiction is that, you know, good science fiction is basically taking ideas that are out there and then putting them into whatever medium, whether it's a movie or a book or whatever, And, and, you know, getting that imagery messaging, if you will, across to the public. And so, you know, we have become accustomed to seeing, you know, things like the Martian, where you have the spaceship with, you know, they have the Taurus that's rotating. And so they have the artificial gravity. In reality, why aren't we, why isn't that something that we're not working on? And, how long do you think it'll be before we actually develop that
0: technology? Oh boy, that's a that's a good one. Um, it, well, I say first of all, I don't. I wouldn't say we're not working on it. Um, there are academic programs, and you know, sort of. I, suppo- very I low, suppose what I meant by that, uh, there's
1: no actual hardware being manufactured correct. to be tested none, in low Earth flying.
0: orbit. It, it, right, none of flying. There's no plan that I'm aware of right now to fly any even on the space station. Um, but but there are people in academia looking at options, and it really comes down to two things: mass and power. Um, and you know, it, it gets back to my statement earlier about not wanting to launch uh, a lot of propellant out there to do the job. Um, it still costs us a heck of a lot to get stuff off the planet, and um, so. And then you know, we did do the station. We did a lot of EVAs. We did a lot of work um, on on orbit assembly. And that was even minimized by the fact that we had the space shuttle, which could take up rather large blocks to do that. Um, when you start looking at, you know, something like the Hermes uh, in the Martian and what it would take to assemble that in orbit, um, both from the sheer mass and number of launches that would take, um, the power that's required to run a system like that. And I think, you know, the other recollection I have of that ship was it did have these vast you know, fields of solar arrays out there. Uh, and uh, it's it's aspirational. It's certainly something that I think we can do in the future uh, as as we improve all these systems. But where we are now for a twenty thirty three mission is we want to take that baby step um, with the technologies that we can scale up from things that are flying today. and just some of those aren't quite there yet so i'll throw another one out uh, that's in that same category and that's nuclear thermal propulsion i mean that's another way to really speed up the transit time for the crew it's going to take us a while longer i think to get that ready so
1: i have a uh, part of my audience is definitely a younger university crowd i'll say okay people go out and do it um oh <laughs> right, yeah that, me...
0: absolutely right please and and you know and and um, but what I'm, what I'm looking at is, a you know, a starting point in 2033 and, and, you know, other missions we might do in the 2030s that will lead to, um, a robust set of missions in the third, in the forties and fifties. And that's when all those kids in the universities now should be really, you know pushing forward with the things that they're working on to make this, you know, a much more civilized way of doing it <laughs> than what we're going to, our crude methods that we'll use in the 2030s. <laughs> so in, in 1998,
1: when, when I went to my first space conference, um, you know, I, I'm one of those people that said, oh, Okay. You know, I read the case for Mars. I started read, reading stuff that NASA was producing. Uh, I, I had a technical background, but I never worked in the space sector. And since then, I've worked on, well, the nonprofit side, uh, the working with NASA through uh, organization that I created that ran a research station in the high Arctic. Uh, and of course the media side. So I've seen all aspects of it. Uh, and it's interesting when I first got involved, I believed back then that, okay, you know, we're 10 to 15 years from getting to Mars. Well, here we are 20 years later, and we're talking, we're talking about 15 years from now. So that's like 35 years. Well, you know, I'd like to see this happen in my lifetime.
0: (laughs) Me too. Me too, Mark. (laughs) All right. So, yeah. And I think, I think it's, it's really, um, you know, you kind of get that if you, if you look at the report, you kind of get that, uh, sense that what I was saying earlier, we feel like now if we can keep the policy, I mean, one thing that I've seen, and I think you agree, um, if we make, if we make changes, big changes, uh, when we transition between administrations, um, we lose ground and, that's one of the things we've been trying to push for is just let's stay on track, you know, have a constancy of purpose. Um, we can disagree about small bits and pieces, whether it should be an orbital mission a or surface mission, but let's, let's keep pressing forward with the vision that we want to do it. And, that, you know, some of these pieces are coming together now. Let's don't, uh, you know, go, and we were really, kind of afraid of that when we went through this transition with this administration. Um, but I think, you know, even in spite of the fact that there is a little more emphasis on the moon, there's still a lot of support for doing the things we're doing to get ready to go to Mars. And, and so I'm actually getting more hopeful that we will do it. I don't know that I'd a hundred percent commit to a, a, surface mission in 2033, but I'm really pretty, feeling pretty good that we will give it a go and, and try to get out there in Mars vicinity in 2033.
1: You know, you, you bring up an interesting point. So, you know, the Jim Bridenstine nomination process was very partisan and obviously uh, it, touch and go as things went along. But the one thing that I have noticed in the last five years, let's say, is that at least from a, the congressional perspective... The there has been a stronger uh, bipartisanship uh, effort to uh, to make the space program work. So even though we have lots of partisanship going on, lots of uh, you know problems uh, on in other aspects of, of government when it actually comes down to the funding and, and, and Congress and working together, they seem to be getting, you know, on the same page a little bit more and things are starting to move forward. And, and that's, yeah. you see that transitioning from government to government. So, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic on that front. So let, let's talk a little bit about policy and, and international policy. I've got one question on that. And then a, just a couple more, um, it's currently assumed that the first humans uh, to Mars mission uh, will be an international effort due in part to the cost of the mission. Um, with China's ambitious and growing space program having the goal of participating in such a mission, but U.S. law for forbidding cooperation with China, how will this problem be solved?
0: Yeah, that's, that's another... Um... Sort of thorny issue that's out there and and remains. Um, I I don't think uh, right now I see that happening on a government to government basis um, unless something drastically changes. Um, certainly, you know, from the economic side, uh, we're going a little bit in the opposite direction uh, right now. Um, And it is interesting, I will say one thing I'll point out in the report, if you look at the science section, um, one of the things that's highlighted in there in the future missions, besides a U.S. uh, sample return mission, is a Chinese sample return mission. So we know it's one of their stated objectives to get a a rover to the surface and to bring back samples. And uh, so I can see it going a couple of different ways. I can see it being a stimulus to you know, help us uh, keep going, um, and I could also see it being something where down the line we we look at it and sort of from a pragmatic standpoint say, look, you know, they've got the capabilities here that we could take advantage of, and certainly I think they would be looking at us and saying the same thing. And at some point, we may just say, okay, you know, let's get over this. Let's let's take advantage of each other's capabilities.
1: This could be something like uh, the '70s between the Soviets and the U.S., where uh, there was cooperation that which led to further cooperation.
0: Correct. Yes.
1: All right. And space
0: um, has been great for that. That's that's you know it, it definitely has a track record for doing that. So
1: yeah. What's the current public perception of a humans to Mars mission?
0: Um, it's actually quite good. Uh, you know, other than, as we were saying earlier there, I think people will be disappointed with, uh, kind of maybe our, our pedestrian, uh, ways we're doing it. But, you know, in terms of the public imagination, it seems to be, um, they seem to be quite captivated with the idea of doing it. Um, and it's interesting at the conference, we had a lot of discussion about that. Um, we brought in some of the, uh, people doing VR, gaming um and uh, artificial intelligence work and um you know i think it, it's it's kind of uh both um something that people can see as a great adventure and uh it captures their imagination that way it has human drama aspects and you know i mentioned earlier television shows there's um I'm kind of watching The Expanse right now, which is a little bit more, you know, out in the future. But certainly that is the uh, the uh, ultimate uh, uh, result of us first going to Mars. Is There's a whole now uh, species of humans living in, on Mars um, and competing with Earth. But uh Hulu's planning on launching a new series called The First. Uh, National Geographic is bringing back their sort of, docudrama about uh, a crew on Mars and, and subsequent missions to start to build up a colony. Um, so there's, there's a lot of interest in it, um, several films as well. Um, so, you know, that that also helps because uh, obviously one of the things we're trying to do is broaden the constituency uh, for support. And uh, um, we see that as being one way to do it. And, and it's interesting, too, the entertainment industry is, is really willing to engage. Uh, they're reaching out to a lot of folks uh, inside NASA and uh, former astronauts to be technical advisors on these shows. So it's, it's kind of a win-win, I think. Okay. Uh,
1: last question about the report. Is there anything else from the report you would like to tell our audience?
0: Um, I just encourage them to, to take a look. It's very accessible. Um, you know, it's not highly technical or uh, <laughs> very dense. Uh, it's done in sort of a magazine style format. And uh, we would welcome folks uh, reading it. And then if they had any feedback or comments, uh, just uh, let us know at exploremars.org. Okay.
1: So my last question doesn't relate to the report, uh, or Mars in particular. Uh, it's one I ask all my guests now, uh, what books are you reading now that you like, whether it's space fiction or nonfiction or other books?
0: Oh, great. Um, you know, I, I just read, uh, Ready Player One and it's funny because I saw the ads for the movie and it got me intrigued and I thought, um, I wasn't able to go out and see the movie in the theaters, but I I I got the book on my e-reader, and uh, I thought that was really fascinating.
1: Now, is that book uh, is the movie based on the book, or did the uh, book come after the movie?
0: It uh, actually, I believe it was uh, the movie was based on the book. Ah, Okay, so similar similar to Andy's book, uh, (laughs) I think it was a real fast sort of transition. Maybe not quite as fast as The Martian. Right. I, I think I heard Andy say he got the the book deal and the movie deal almost uh, simultaneously. <laughs> oh, there you go! But he had done that serially, uh serially uh, as a almost like a blog post. I think that people were pretty aware of what was going on with The Martian. Yeah, I but remember that's that. a really interesting one. And then then there's one by a Chinese author called The Three Body Problem that I also read recently.
1: Yes, that's part of a series. We actually just did a, uh, a full-blown uh, article on that uh, because uh, Amazon paid is, uh, was going to pay a billion dollars for the rights to take the series, the three books, and turn it into a TV series.
0: Ah, wonderful. Okay. Yeah. So, yep, there we go. <laughs> More. Uh, okay.
1: Well, uh, I'd like to thank you, Joe, for being on the show. Uh, hopefully, we'll get you on the show uh, in the future.
0: All right, Mark, well, you're certainly welcome. Thank you for your interest in the report, and uh, and I hope that your re- uh, that your followers and, and readers enjoy it. <laughs> well,
1: that's a wrap on this episode of the SpaceQ podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com/spaceq. We really appreciate feedback. And to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcast or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca, where you'll find an archive of each episode. If you send me a comment by email, I'll write back to you as soon as I can. On Twitter, you can follow us at Canada in Space. And if you use Facebook, you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page, The Space Q. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app.